I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Today we're talking all things college entrance and what you need to do to put yourself in the right place in the right time with the right idea of what's involved to get into the college that you want. I'm delighted to be joined by Harvey Wizard from The College Wizard. Now the story of how Harvey Wizard became an internet multimillionaire in the early days of affiliate marketing is told in the New York Times bestseller Get Rich Click. Harvey is a former Dartmouth District Enrollment Director, ad executive, serial seven-figure entrepreneur, film producer, best-selling author and a globe-trotting stand-up comedian. Now today Harvey will tell us how to get accepted into schools like Harvard and Stanford, um, but also how the same approach can enable anyone to win at life and knowing what's involved to make sure that you stand out among the crowd and knowing the game that you're actually playing in order to put yourself in the best position. So I hope you enjoy this, my conversation with Harvey Wizard. Hi, Harvey. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. It's always great to chat to people from around the world. I think this might be a country that I've not actually talked to anyone in before, so that's quite exciting. And also someone who has a perception of life and a way of being, which I think works across education, but also people in general terms. So, yeah, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. And hola from Costa Rica. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, and how is it there at the moment? What's the what's the what's the weather like? What's the general uh, situation? Well, right. Well, I I particularly live in an area with perfect weather, which is not the case for all of Costa Rica. Most people who come to Costa Rica are more more aware of the shore areas, which can get extremely hot, extremely muggy. Uh, air conditioning could cost you hundreds of dollars a month. That kind of thing. I live just about thirty minutes from San Jose, which is the capital of uh, Costa Rica. And it's generally about all, it, it's almost always 26 degrees here. Something like 26 to 28 degrees centigrade. That's 75 Fahrenheit for the metrically challenged Americans. And, uh, and, it, and even now that we're in the rainy season, it's a couple of hours of rain a day, but it's, it's generally nice all the time where I am. Yes. Yeah. So it was Two a hours of rain a day from someone in the UK. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know, I was explaining when uh, when my uh, my wife and I went to Ireland, for instance, uh, that the rain is different. You know, the the rain in the rain in Dublin in May is very very uncomfortable compared to Costa Rica, where it's usually warm even when the rain. I mean, people walk around without raincoats, but they get wet because they dry up relatively quickly and it's warm. So. Yeah, it's a whole different world. And uh, <laughs> and and how long have you actually been there? Um, most of the last 10 years. Most of the last 10 years. 
So, so tell us about the the university and college admissions and, and how that works in terms of being sort of location independent as well. Yes, I, I am location independent because I work on I work with students and um, you know I, and parents. I have family meetings on Zoom all the time, and you know it's interesting. Ten years ago, twelve years ago now, when I actually uh, brought my ability to teach SAT to um, to the internet and Skype actually, and I, I believe I was one of the first people in the world who actually did at least in the U.S. SAT preparation on Zoom or or Skype, however you want to call it. And and it's funny because when I started, a lot of my difficulty was convincing parents that you could actually effectively teach on Skype or Zoom, that you could do it virtually. Parents were very nervous about that, thinking that somehow it was my hand on the shoulder of a student while they were doing their work that made all the difference. And, you know, and of course it doesn't. And interestingly, I've been, I've been tutoring SAT since I was a freshman at DARPA in the 1976. That's really what I started with. The fact that I was able to beat the standardized test that every high school student needs to take for entry to any college in the U.S., and the test itself is a bit different from my understanding. I haven't looked at the European tests or the UK tests uh, in detail, but conceptually, those European and UK tests are much more content-based. What they're doing in the SAT, I, I feel it's a particularly American thing. You know, very. I've been lucky enough to do a lot of traveling, so I have a sense of America as just one way of looking at the world. You know, one of one of many, and. The SAT and the ACT, you know, the American testing is much more about the test acting as a very sophisticated screening device where you are being tricked on every question. And sometimes the thing that drives parents crazy and gets them to call me is that they know all through their son or daughter's educational career, always A's, 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 A's. Now, on the SAT, a perfect score is a 1600. And so, you know, parents whose kids get straight A's are assuming something close to 1600 it comes up. Nowhere near that because in school, the education I see is much more linear, as in the teacher tells you something. If you remember that, it shows up on the test, you answer the same way, and you're good. And the same thing for math, largely, that they teach you how to do a type of problem. You do a bunch of those same types of problems for your homework, and then you see the same thing on the test. So if you're diligent, you can generally score quite well. Whereas on the SAT, every question is a puzzle. It's taking what you know and applying it to a puzzle where they're trying to trick you. So that's really what the preparation part of the SAT is for me. And I'm unique in that I actually systematized the puzzle. Effectively, what I'm teaching students is like the times tables for the test except I'm the only one in the world who created a set of times tables. So, and as I explained, if you, if you use the rules, you will get the score. And that's what makes it so easy to do anywhere on Zoom. And why is it that you think that the SATs work in that way? Like you say, when the, the education system leading up to it is, is different. Why do you think they're not more integrated in? in what oh, sure, sure. Well, it's, it's, it's really based on the numbers. It's based on the numbers because think of this uh everybody wants to go to harvard let's say okay 
and that's worldwide, you know, that's everybody's dream. Oh my God, if I could just go to Harvard. And Harvard takes in 2,500, something like 2,000, let's say 2,000 a year. In the US, there are 25,000 high schools, which means every one of them has a valedictorian, the kid that thinks he's going to Harvard. And, and honestly, honestly, I thought that was gonna be me. Um, and you never know what you could do that's either right or wrong, especially when you're a kid that could do things uh, to help you or to hurt you. As it turned out, I, because a kid challenged me and said, in the sense he said he was smarter than me, and I said, no, you're not. I found that it was possible to graduate high school in three years if he could do four years of work in three. So I did four years of work in three years just to be the valedictorian of the class a year ahead of me. It wasn't just for that, it was a good, it was a good motivation. But the point is, I didn't know and didn't find out till later that both Harvard and Princeton looked down on that. They felt I might be too immature, and that's part of why I ended up at Dartmouth. So no, I didn't get into Harvard either. But, <clears throat> but in terms of the SAT, there are 25,000 people like me every year, <laughs> but there's only 2,000 spots, and a lot of them go to you know, people who are the, uh, the children of other Harvard graduates, all of these things. So if you can make a test, as the SAT is, where no more than about 2,000 kids will even get 95% accuracy or better, you now have an excellent screening device. And this has all gone completely topsy-turvy since the pandemic when U.S. schools are now what are called SAT optional. And there's, that's a whole interesting thing as well, right? Because it's a re they said optional. They didn't say they weren't going to look at it. They almost had to do that just so they didn't look like monsters during the pandemic. And, and it's thrown everything out of whack. It used to be a little bit easier because that's what explained to students, look, they just are not enough spots. And they haven't increased the number of spots at the American school since I was going to school, you know, like 40 years ago. So it's more and more and more and more competitive. Harvard only accepts 5% of the 95% who apply, and almost everybody who applies is already a straight-A student. So it's a long way of explaining that the SAT needed to be doing something different or how could it screen? The legitimate purpose of the SAT has always been, or the claimed one, and there's a certain legitimacy to this, that there are so many different schools, at least in the US or worldwide, that what does an A actually mean, right? An A at a very difficult school might only be a B at an easier school. So on one level, the SAT does level the playing field. Everybody is to take the same test. But the level of trickiness is what makes it a screening device because that's what they always needed. And again, there's, it's sneaky, right? Because they were, even when they were taking the SAT, they said it's not the only thing, but you could figure out that they can use that one number to sort the pile, hmm. right? Like, and so that's why it's done this way. That's why it's so tricky. And, and I guess, so the first step is even knowing that that's the case, <laughs> you know, sort of having had this conversation, it's that, oh, I now understand, like you say, that the way I thought education was working and the fact that I've done everything I've been told to do. Actually, yes. there's this, there's this whole other bit of understanding that I need to do, which can then, like I say, take you into that kind of program that can help you do as well as you can. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, I more and more uh, find myself feeling like, uh, like a crusader. Um, partly because I had the luxury of not doing what I'm doing to pay the rent. Um, and what I mean by that is that 
from my perspective, a lot of what goes on in this admissions coaching preparation industry um, is not necessarily completely truthful to parents or students is um, is profit motivated. And let me give you, and, and I try to be able to say the truth in, in light of that. And here's what's really happening. If you're a parent of a student who suddenly comes home when they take that first, they even give you, it's called the PSAT in 10th, in 11th grade, which for the US, it's like the year before you would graduate when many students will take it. And that's the first time that they get this number that scares everybody. What's going on? I thought my kid was smart. And so then they start looking for SAT tutoring, which is easy to find because the, the market has gotten glutted. And the classic thing that SAT tutors say is things like, we're going to find your kid's weaknesses and fill them, which is very comforting to a parent. The idea that there's something my kid should have known, didn't know, they're going to teach it, well, we're going to fix it. But getting back to something we talked to a little bit earlier, we, we talked about the 10,000 hours of you know, the Malcolm Gladwell talks about. And, and this is the concept that to get really, really good at something, really, really good, really to master something, you need 10,000 hours. Uh, for instance, they found out in the book, it talks about how Bill Gates, obviously he's a smart guy, but part of why he was set for doing what he's done is because when he was younger, he had this act, unlimited access to a kind of computer mainframe where he would just go there every day for years and years and years when nobody else had that same access, right? So his ability to practice something that no one else was practicing set him up. The truth that I see for SAT, because the test is so tricky, even with my perfect system, most kids are going to need 20 to 30 practice tests. Each one takes five hours. You need, working with me, let's say 100, 150 hours of dedicated practice over the period of usually, let's say, a year or more. But that does not fit well with, I think, anybody's psychology, and particularly with Americans, let's get it fast. <laughs> let's get it done fast and easy mentality. So there are tons of people selling these boot camps, you know, an eight-week boot camp. And even if you can give someone a lot of tips in those eight weeks, there's nowhere near enough time for the average student, even the very, very good student, to be able to actually go in and master the test. So the, the problem is that parents are underestimating what it's really going to take if they want to succeed. And most of the people in the industry are keeping that idea going should be easy. So there's just, so the frustration builds and, and it's just not the truth. Interestingly, the story I can tell about that is I had a guy who called me from Harvard. He had just graduated and he had gotten a near perfect on his own SAT score. And he was calling to have me work with his sister to make her life a little, he thought a little bit easier. And he asked, we were talking about practicing in my system and you know, that's why I offer unlimited lessons to any student who starts. As hard as you're willing to work, we'll support you because we know it could be a long time. Some kids can do it in a month or two, very small percentage. Most are going to need a much longer preparation time to just get all that practice in. So, what, you know, I, and I explained that to people and sometimes people are surprised it's going to take so long and say, well, this guy from Harvard 
when I told him to f expect 100 to 150 hours of practice, he said, wait, did you say 100 to 150 hours of practice? That's what you're doing? I said, yeah. Now I feel, I feel um, envious of my kid sister because I did it myself. I self-studied. I put in two hours a day every day for two years to get my 1580. That's 1500 hours. And it's amazing to me that somebody could get it done in 100, 150 hours, to which I explained that given the mindset that people are coming to me with, even though I tell people this, by the end of the day, they maybe put in 10. And then they're surprised when they don't get the score. Hmm. And what I'm interested in is that you talk about the time frame there. Do you Does it need to be around the time that you're going to be taking the SATs? Or is it something you can kind of start earlier and start to get your, get your mind kind of... You're absolutely you right. To... Yeah, it, it's funny because uh, this is part of my quest. <laughs> part of my quest is to get, at least with me, because I offer an unlimited program. So it's gonna cost $10,000 whether you come in ninth grade, 10th grade, or 11th grade. So you might as well come in ninth and make sure that your son or daughter has enough time to get whatever score they're willing to work for because there are so many elements in it. You know, especially in the reading section of the SAT and with the, you know, with the internet and with kids not reading anymore, even if I teach the secret to getting the perfect score on the test, if you don't know the word, there's nothing you can do. If you, if you haven't been, had the experience to read the kinds of passages that show up on the SAT and your comprehension isn't there, that's a separate problem. So this long you know, on-ramp to the test is to address all of these issues, not to mention the biggest challenge that I have is test day itself. I have so many students who can score near perfectly in practice, then they go in and take the real test and the score is down by two to 300 points, by, by not just a little, but by a big margin, which is because that's just how tricky the test is. My job is mostly to get people to have proper respect for what they're trying to achieve and how tricky the test is because you go in on the day of the test and suddenly you don't even recognize it's happening, which makes it even more insidious to that extent. Kids come home and say, I got almost perfect mom and dad. And then the score comes back and it's not even close. I've had students who have gotten into Harvard, Stanford, the most prestigious schools, but getting there, even working with me, has taken them a year and a half, 50 practice tests. So if you maybe it took them 250 hours of practice and six attempts at the real test spaced out every few months over a year and a half. But then again, you said you wanted to go to Harvard. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you wanted to be of... the part of that 5%. You have to realize, you, it's not, I tell people to focus, don't focus on the 5% if you want to be realistic. You got to focus on the 95% of the straight A students who are getting rejected at this place. Yeah. It, so you have to be prepared for the proper challenge. You have to properly prepared for the challenge. Yeah, I mean, it really is that sort of that that sort of slight edge approach, isn't it? Is the fact that you know, even if you're doing everything you're supposed to um, and keeping all that going, that puts you, you know, up up in the in the top echelons of people because a lot of people won't have done the homework, they won't have studied, they won't have done all Absolutely. those things. But what you're talking about is that even when you've done all of that, you're then going to have to give yourself that extra push by by understanding, like I said, 
we're going to be studying in 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 advance of all of that we're going to be putting the hours in and you know you've got this goal and with that goal whatever that happens to be whether you want to be an olympian or professional whatever it happens to be yes you're going to have to put the hours in and also be knowledgeable about what you're trying to do and how that system works absolutely absolutely and and again i'm i i hope any american parent listening to the podcast uh takes heed because it's i don't even know what to say when a parent of a senior, as is happening now, because the admission, the application, we're right in the middle of the college application process in the US. It starts about September of the senior year, and you have to have everything in by December. And parents call me now. They, you know, I, 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 I am in social media, people see me, uh, they think they may need help, and a parent calls me, and I'll usually start by saying, you're breaking my heart. You're breaking my heart <laughs> because there's just nothing we can do now. And the problem is that in part fostered by the tutoring industry, parents think a month or so should be enough. I even had a student who had been working with me for six months, and it's hard to get a 16-year-old to sit and practice SATs when they'd rather be doing other things. But finally, the kid was in a good practice regimen. His parents were very happy. And then he went to school and his guidance counselor made an announcement that no one should start practicing for the SAT more than 30 days in advance of the test because they would forget. There's a lot of bad information out there. And, and the kid stopped practicing and disappeared. He was just looking for some adults to tell him he didn't have to do it. <laughs> and then the guidance counselor gave it to him and that was the end of it. Yeah, and I think that's why... That's why I love doing the podcast so much. Is because you know it's these it's these conversations behind, like say, a website or a, or a, a, an an online something, which you think, oh yeah, I can I kind of get this. But you, it's only when you really have this sort of sit down chat that you sort of you understand the whole backstory and the whole kind of way these things are working. And, and yes. like I say, the more you can hear that earlier on, the better. So you know those kids who are who was still in elementary school and you're thinking, oh, right, <laughs> I think my, I'd like my child to, to be aiming high, then at least you've sort of got this in the back of your mind that we're not talking about waiting, you know, many, many years. We're thinking about how we can fit this into the general idea of what we want our education to look like for our child. Yeah, no, absolutely. And even though, I, I suppose the paradox is that in, in my own life, uh, I've made way more money from things that had nothing to do with my Ivy League Dartmouth education um, and as an entrepreneur, I absolutely believe that college is not essential to have a happy, productive, and very profitable life. But for parents or students who come to me because they do want to go to that particular school, uh, it's a joy for me to help them because I know how difficult the road really is. And I do feel sometimes that I'm not just helping and educating, but I'm also saving them uh, <laughs> because parents come to me frequently having used some other very expensive service and got no results. And now they've laid that money out, lost the time, come to me, um, you know, come to me after the fact. So in fact, I mean, I do anyone who, who just, if anyone who goes to the Harvey, just Harvey wizard, uh, which is not my, you know, people think that sounds like a made-up name <laughs> because it is. But um, 
<laughs> but, the, but it makes it my, it made my SEO very easy. It just all you have to remember is Harvey Wizard. The point is, you come to my website. I will give you fifteen free minutes, and I will give away my entire SAT system, which I know is the best in the world. Just to try to stem the tide of what I consider bad information, bad approach, and people trying to take advantage of parents who are desperate to get as much money as they can. That's part of the problem that's been happening that I see in the U.S. Everybody is now either an admission coach or an SAT tutor. <laughs> everybody. And and would, could you believe that not everybody is that competent? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, that, and it's a problem because parents are particularly suspicious of me when I talk about having a perfect system and, and, and things like that. And it's, it's just something I started instituting in the last couple of months. It's been working very well. 15 minutes free. And, and what I, in those 15 minutes, what I'm more interested in, you're going to tell me about your son or daughter. I'm going to create what I call a, a branding hook which is with somebody really needs to get into these competitive schools. Not, they, so many kids show up who do have all perfect numbers. So it's become, it, and probably shouldn't be this way, but given that it is, and I can help, you have to present yourself as a unique superstar, something that they've never seen before, on top of the SAT. It's not easy getting into Harvard anymore. Not that it was ever, but it's harder now. And why particularly did you want to sort of step into the shoes that you are in terms of helping people in that way bearing in mind like you said you know you can be incredibly successful and have that experience of being successful not despite college but you know as it's not the be all and end all and, and many people don't go sure. down that route so so why why that that feel that need to kind of help people? sure sure well like I said, i've been um i've had a very very lucky life um I've got to do a lot of different things, and 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 honestly, most many of the things that I have ended up doing have just sort of come to me by accident, something I didn't expect, and then I realized I was in a position, given an opportunity to do something. That's sort of how it happened. So, in terms of what my college wizard uh, practice right now, which is really a passion project. And it's always been a passion project for me. And I'm very lucky to have a, not many people get to have a passion project where they do something. And even if they're getting paid, it's, they don't, they don't need the money, you know? Um, but the way it started for me was when I was in high school, I was, I had to figure out my own SAT and to point my PSAT that I, the you know the first taste of it, my score was twelve hundred uh, out of sixteen hundred, and I did within a year. I figured I basically built the system that I'm using now then, and got my own score up to fifteen eighty. And let me give you an example when I talk about the system just to make it more tangible. The hardest part for almost everybody in the ACT is the reading test. You think why would that be? Because remember it's tricky. And you're given four answers, and so many students talk about narrowing it down to two and then picking incorrectly. My approach at the time, and part of why I believe I have a more successful approach, is I did not approach the test educationally. I approach it entrepreneurially. Here is my initial hypothesis. The biggest vulnerability of the college board, which is the company that runs the SAT, would be 
if someone could successfully prove there was a second right answer and sue the S and sue the college board. This is a very American story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> very American. And yet it turned out that that was the secret because I said, you know, if they have to be able to beat, if they have to be able to support this in court, American court, then the answers must be objective. The problem is you're thinking, could it be this way? Could it be this way? Well, what if there is an objective, mathematically infallible way to know? And that's what I did for the whole test. The most dramatic thing I can tell you is relative to the reading part, because as a way for the test creators to be sure that no one could ever say a second answer was right, every correct answer, and for anybody listening, I will pay you $10,000 if you can bring me any real college board question, real SAT question where this doesn't work. And this is a sneaky thing I'm doing because I want you to tell your kid that too. Go get, Har call Harvey up, we'll get his free system. You're going to practice your butt off. And if you can just find one question that it doesn't work on, you get $10,000. The point is my system's perfect. <laughs> so by the time you figure out you're not getting $10,000. You'll be great on the SAT. This is how you have to think with a 17-year-old. But the point is, every correct answer is merely a paraphrase of text on the page. So my system is simply every correct answer. The, all you're doing is you're matching the individual words of your answers. The one that matches 100% is right. There's a lot of wrong ones with maybe 10 words, but eight of them match, but two don't. And sometimes people say, this is what I mean about beating the test. You just sit there with a pencil, you train your brain to do this, you put a check mark next to every word that does match. Once you find a word in any answer where it doesn't match, that can't be the right one. So you eliminate, you can eliminate on one wrong word and you just have to be sure that all of your words match. Here's an example of an SAT question, what I mean by this, and how they take something and paraphrase it into another expression you're less likely to notice. The text of the SAT might read, why do flowers have a stronger scent? The correct answer reads, what is the reason for the upper limit on the intensity of the flower's aroma? You see how they're identical in meaning? Every single question, and it's not just the SAT. There's, there's an SAT, there's an ACT, there's an SSAT, there's a PSAT. And to get into law school, there's the LSAT. And it turns out that that one sentence that I told you will beat 75% of the LSAT as well. But it takes a lot of practice. And yet I said, hey, this is the times table. I feel like I've created the times table for the SAT. Think of, you could figure out 8 times 6 by addition, it would just take you longer, you probably make more mistakes and go slower. What I've created is effectively, if you memorize those times tables, or my, you know, my rules, nine reading rules, 14 writing rules, 31 math rules, then you're going to get it. So I realized I created the system. And by the time I got to Dartmouth, I was assigned to work in the dish room. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine, except I said, now I have an alternative. I can probably just tutor a few kids at the local high school on this new SAT system and make more money, which I did. And then when I graduated college, it, it, people in my family, friends knew about this whole SAT thing. And I would get calls, could you help my son, could you help my daughter? So I spent 
something like t- over 20 years helping five to 10 kids a month, a year rather, just on the phone for fun, for the satisfaction, right? And, but the other thing that happened when I was talking about accidents, I was, I guess I was out of Dartmouth, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And I personally did not, I did not have a great time at this school. It wasn't a good fit for me. Dartmouth is a very, very conservative place. It's always been, you know, and I'm not the most conservative guy. And, it, you know, I didn't feel comfortable. I, I you know, I, I, I didn't have a great time there. And so when I got a call from people in the admissions office asking me to be, they said, we would like you to be the Dartmouth District Enrollment Director for the Hudson Valley region of New York State where you live which is basically because nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> in my particular region, there just weren't people who were willing to interview kids as an alumni, as an alumnus. And I said, and in doing that, I suddenly actually was making these personal connections with real humans who weren't getting in either because of the score or because of the way they presented themselves. And that was how I got the idea that I could do both, that I could get the score and I could, using my marketing, it's really a marketing challenge to help a kid get into um, these schools. So it was really realizing that I could do something that nobody else was doing the way that I was doing and that I could be very successful with it. And that's part of the whole wizard. It was actually my ex-wife who came up with the idea of the college wizard and so I was Harvey, the college wizard. And recently I just figured because my, my real name is not as easy to remember. And I said, I'll just be Harvey wizard and I'll be, and, and I'm actually going to be changing my name uh, in a couple of years. Once I get my Costa Rican citizenship, it'll be easier to do down here. So, right. so yeah, so that's, so it's just this joy and, and the, the, and why do I, and why do I do it? And why would I do it as a passion project? Um, and I once had a kid call me. This is, th- these are the things that make me feel like my life is worth living, honestly. Among, there's many things, but this is incredibly satisfying. Very, very smart girl called me a number of years ago, and she was interested in both engineering and public policy. And she was asking my help to figure out, well, what do I major in and how do I think of myself? And I said, I w- see yourself as a technocrat. The person in the public policy room who actually understands the technology well enough to know what would be a reasonable solution that could actually work in the real world because you understand the technology. And she got excited by that. I helped her with the application process. She went to Stanford and then Two years later, I get an email from the Obama White House where she's working in the technology department, thanking me for helping her see that that was what she was meant to do as she saw it. So that's you know how I got into that. I realized I, on the podcast, I, I didn't mention that I was an internet multimillionaire, so that, which, which, <laughs> expi- which explains why I have the freedom to do uh, to you know, to do what I do, to choose what I do, uh, and I'm every day conscious that that is a a gift that I have that most people in the world don't. So I try to use my time and my talent to uh, uh, be as helpful as I can. 
And I think for me, the, the biggest takeaway, which you hear a lot, but it's really hard to do, is the fact that when you're wanting to either, like, say, get into Harvard or, or to get into something which you think is, um, I don't know, sort of a, a square box in terms of I need to be like this because this is the person thereafter. Right. You're all, you're already failing in some ways because, like you said, you, you need to be that square box, but you also need to be it to be you full bore because they're looking for that X factor in inverted commas and, like say, that marketing, how you can bring yourself to the table, which I think is true across life generally. Exactly. And, Exactly. And 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 it's really hard to do that a lot of the time, but but you sort of you start to realise that you know being yourself a hundred percent just gives yes. you something that no one else has, and then I think you get that confidence that it's about your life and putting your best self forward, and of course having the goals of where you want to go. Yes, but it all falls into place in the best possible way, and like you say, you you normally get they're probably not necessarily in the straight line you're expecting, but. Like you say, you, you, you've made this story, you've made this journey. And like you say, oh, I need to be this type of person and this type of person. It happens a lot. You know, I want to be an academic and I want to be a musician. Well, actually, you're probably both. And that that sort of coming together of both makes you the person that no one else can be because that's who you are. And I think walking into that and feeling confident with that, that's, that's a really empowering thing, which I, I think cuts across everything that you said today. I hope so. And, you know, Sometimes, sometimes what I do is, is, is almost all about gaming the system. There's always a certain amount of gaming the system in what I'm doing. And sometimes it feels more so than others, as in the example of a brilliant kid. And this is the problem. When I talk about, you know, 95% of people being rejected from Harvard, there was even a story at Stanford an admissions officer admitted 70% of the applications he saw would make wonderful Stanford students, students who would thrive and succeed at Stanford. But he only had room for 5%. Now, when you know that, then you start realizing, okay, I am probably as good as most everybody else who's applying. It's just who tells the best story. What people don't realize, they're actually hiring me to be their storyteller. And I do. I have a unique set of skills because... Um, well, I'm a published songwriter, and you understand, which is storytelling. Um, I the way I became an internet multimillionaire was through affiliate marketing, which is all about copywriting. Which, if you're doing it right, storytelling. Uh, I've I've directed a couple of films, storytelling, and I'm a stand-up comedian, storytelling. So it's a matter of saying, seeing where the kid is and how can I create a compelling story that's authentic but has a hook that makes them memorable. Parents came to me, and this is very late in the, in the, in the season, and <laughs> crying because they're br an absolutely brilliant kid um, spent all his time playing Fortnite. You know, which is a video game that the scourge. I don't know if it's if it's as popular in the UK. Well, you have kids, so it's, is it there yeah. too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortnite's pretty big here too. Yeah. Okay, so so the, you know the parents started with you know a kid has wrecked his life. All he does, and come on, and that's another thing. Parents need need to realize that they're in control. There's a there's a personality in the U.S. Doctor Phil, and he always says. You know, you've got parents, you have something your kid wants, you're in control. You just have to be willing to have to be willing to tolerate them whining when you don't give it to them until they do what you want. Right. 
but you know and 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 so parents um you know, you know parents don't understand that sometimes and you so you don't let your kid play Fortnite all day unless they're doing the other thing i mean that's it's very similar but this kid, but the good part of it was he was in the top five percent of the world of Fortnite players and i said so you can be a 150 dollar an hour Fortnite consultant where kids you know little kids are saying mommy i want i want i want Fortnite mentor i want Fortnite mentor for my birthday i want Fortnite mentor for christmas and and i basically helped him create a website present himself that way and he didn't get into harvard but he got into a school called berkeley which is a very competitive school and fundamentally this one aspect of him is what got him in that's what differentiated him they're not you know, just to be that bold to say, yeah, I play too much Fortnite. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a Fortnite yeah. consultant. So, yeah, there's that's the idea. It's finding what you do. And I try to guide students separate from the whole SAT part to create impact in the world that they can demonstrate that goes beyond what a normal teenager would do. So I'm giving them a little push and sort of trying to elevate them. I said, we need to find some example of almost adult level impact. So in other words, my students publishing books, they're running their own podcasts. Uh, I've had students write, direct, and produce an off-Broadway show. A lot of these things are using my entrepreneurial tricks, meaning you can do it in easier ways than you might think, but the admissions officer just sees the result and they're impressed. Yeah, I love it. And and you're you know say that way of bringing all those skills together that just by having that conversation it's like, you know, you've got the experience, you've had the success, you've got the understanding, you've got the system and you've got the, you know, the the backup of all those people saying, "Yeah, we've been here, done it and had that um experience with you and and it's been successful," which is which is amazing. Um I'm always interested when people sort of get into the education world in any particular way. Is there a school experience or, or a teacher that you kind of sort of look back on and go, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a nugget there or there's something there which kind of sort of put me on this path or, or got me thinking about it? Or, or from what you said, it's probably more about the fact that you didn't get it and you figured it out on your own. But <laughs> Well, there's, there's a few things about that. Let me try to answer it quickly because for me it's, it's very um... – there's a, there's a lot to unpack. Both of my uh, my father's passed away. Uh, my mother is eighty nine and still runs on the treadmill. Um, but uh, they're both te they're both teachers. My father was actually a failed teacher. They kicked him out because he couldn't control the class. And you know, I, I never had much relationship with uh, with my father. So there's a certain element that I never wanted to be a teacher. Never, <laughs> not that. Um, and then, you know, I sort of fell into this and when you talk about a teacher, an inspiring teacher, um, the most probably meaningful teacher in my life was professor David Lagomarsino. He's now a professor emeritus from Dartmouth and he was a young professor when I met him at Dartmouth and I'd mentioned earlier, I think, that uh, Dartmouth was a very conservative place, which wasn't necessarily the most supportive one for me. Because when I got there, I really thought I was there to change the world and come up with ideas maybe that no one else ever had. I didn't realize 
that most of the people were there to get into business or law school, you say, which is a different, <laughs> which happens to be a different way of approaching things. So I was in my, um, I guess, early European history class with Professor Lagomus Marcino, and we were learning about nominalism, which is a strange middle, lead, like, a strange philosophy. I was also in my English class reading Paradise Lost by Milton. That's been a tradition at Dartmouth for years. Every freshman has to read Paradise Lost. And when you get into that, you realize you have to resolve this free will and determinism issue. You know, that if God knew that this was going to happen, was there free will, wasn't there? And I realized that this philosophy of nominalism resolved the paradox. So I went into my English class, and when we talked about it, I basically, I guess, went off topic <laughs> because I was so idealistic. I was like, maybe we shouldn't be discussing free will versus determinism at all. Maybe it's as simple as Milton was a nominalist. That's why he did it. <laughs> <laughs> and I expected, to, you know, to either be to get support or to be for the teacher to explain why I was wrong. But I didn't get that. I basically just got shut down. And after class was told that I had a bad approach to literature. My approach was too broad. I was bringing in too many things. I swear to God. Now, she happened to be a first-year teacher. And going to Professor Lagomarsino and having him explain the politics of the situation and and help me. And more than anything, as an 18-year-old kid, I mean, to be, I, when I was at Dartmouth, I was told, one professor said, you sh your ideas reflect an ignorance of the Western philosophical tradition. Another took asked me not to speak in class anymore because my remarks were off-center. Um, I had these experiences. And to have him essentially bolster me, make me feel good about myself, encourage my ideas, give me resources, make me feel good about myself, is something that I've never forgotten that I've always treasured. And a few years ago, when I was starting to get written, I think when I got written up in Entrepreneur Magazine, um, I called him and let him know how much I valued the time that he spent with me and what he had given me and how much I appreciated it. So that's my teacher story. Yeah, I love it. And it's all it's always about how it makes you feel. And, and I just think that's such a such a powerful message. What was the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Or is there a piece of advice that you give your, your younger self now looking back? Yeah. I'm, the piece of advice I give myself now is, <laughs> is in contrast to the advice that I got. And, and, and it really comes to that, that it was, I can, you know, it's my mother's voice, uh, which I always, which, Harvey, you can do whatever you want, but you got to have some way to make a living, which was really a way of saying, you got to be a little miserable like everybody else. You're not getting out of it. You have to have the crappy job and then you can do your fun stuff on the side. And I think it was around 23 when I had my epiphany that didn't come from my parents. I met somebody, actually like you, what we've been talking about, somebody who had three or four different things they did. And the, to see this 23-year-old renting their own apartment without having a regular job. I think they did some tutoring. They did some of this, some of this, some of this. And altogether, they were actually surviving. And the idea that one could survive without having a distasteful job 
amaze me. So my advice is you can make money doing pretty much anything as long as you satisfy somebody's need. Anything. You'll appreciate this. Between 1983 and 1986, I was making $150 an hour consistently as a street musician in New York City because I marketed it. I figured out, I was doing it, there's a place called Duffy Square, and you can't do it there anymore because they've changed the way it's set up, but it used to be, it's sort of this island in Times Square where people would wait for hours to get half-price Broadway tickets. Hours. They're bored. <laughs> they like show tunes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, they, they, you, we didn't do only show tunes, but you could, but, but they're, People, you know, they're interested in music and they're bored. So I got these powered, powered, powered amps. I had one in front of me, one up on the bus shelter. So I was able to be heard across this entire island. And the one thing that I did that made it so much more profitable than everybody else was realizing when people had been in line for that long, they didn't want to get out to put money in a guitar case. So I created these like collapsible boxes out of dowels and pieces of wood with cloth around them. And I taped them down on the subway gratings on either side of the line so that people could just kind of throw their money in as they pass by, like, like a church, <laughs> like, the, like passing the, uh, you know, the, the uh, collection plate at the church or something. And I put big black garbage bags in there so that they didn't see how much money was going in and realized... They may have been less generous if they realized we were making more money than they were in many cases, which is, you know, my, which is just one example of you find what you're good at, find what you like to do, and, it's, and if you can tailor what you do to satisfy somebody's needs, to make them have something that they want, that they enjoy, you can be successful. Yeah, and I think it's that kind of bringing all those things together, isn't it? Which is which is the key element, and uh, yeah, I love that so much. And is there a resource you'd like to share? And this can be professional or personal, but you know, mm -hmm. podcast, book, video, song, anything that springs to mind. Sure. Um, in my book, <laughs> I, I am a best-selling author, by the way. Uh, the the it, it, I co-authored a book called Creating Joy, and. I was basically asked to write a chapter about creating joy. And the reason it resonated with me at that exact moment was that uh, my, my only child, my daughter, died at 28 two years ago. And, and the resource I'm about to, to, to name is the one that I talk about in the chapter of my book, and it's the one that allowed me to quickly find joy after my daughter's death. And it's something that uh, completely changed my life since I read this book, uh, I guess about 10 years ago now. It was a book that was given to me by a psychologist. Imagine going to a psychologist and in the, in the first session he said, read this book. It's a book called, it's by Albert Ellis. He's a psychologist. It's on Amazon. And the book is how to be, how to make yourself happy and remarkably less disturbable. Now, the idea of the book is really simply that 
unless you are terminally ill and in horrible pain, you have the ability to make yourself happy at every moment, just how you frame what's happening, always. And like, yes, there is the bad of whatever has happened, but no matter what bad thing has happened to you, you can turn it into something positive if you think of it that way. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. during, okay, the pandemic happened and you, it was horrible for many of us, for those who discovered, as I did, that it turns out that a lot of the explanation for why so much amazing creativity occurred during the Renaissance is that there was the plague. People were stuck in the house and they had to find a, you know, a good use of their time. So that's just one example. But for me, with the death of my daughter, I very quickly thought to myself, how long do you want your loved ones to be miserable? Right? If you really think about that, not at all. Why should they be miserable? So that it's the kind of thing I'm talking about with this book. Howard Ellis, How to Make Yourself Happy and Remarkably Less Disturbable. To begin to control your own emotions and realize it's the story you tell yourself that can make you either happy or less happy in any moment. And you do have control. I think it's really powerful. And thanks so much for sharing that. It's, it's um, I think so many people will understand and also relate in their own circumstances. And I think it, it is true. I am... Um, I was part of um, um, a hospice and, and one of the things which became very, very apparent when you chat to a lot of people who are grieving is the fact that they're very often grieving for themselves. It's oh, the it's time always, lost, yeah. all, all of that kind of thing. So like I say, as soon as you start to understand that and then you can, like say, you change the story or you frame it in such a way that changes that initial understanding of it's for somebody else and realize it's for you. And then like I say, you then quite rightly said you have the power then to make that whatever it happens to be and um and it's different for everybody and and i wouldn't make light of that and people need the help and support in whichever way they can but i think as as an essence of of where all that starts and and the center of all that i think that's so powerful and, and so incredibly true and and again i just use the example of my daughter because it's so dramatic but it's it's the same in any even small thing that you know that might happen to you right that you know you you, you miss a meal or something and you say well my weight was up a, a little anyway so good there it, it's just that once something happens you you have the choice anything can be to, can be made to make you feel better or made to or, or feel worse just from you know, from your own choices and so much as opposed to people thinking that this happened to me, oh, you know, that, that, that the external surf, that the external things that happen to you are in control when they're actually not. And that is to me the, the secret to both happiness, success and, uh, and a meaningful life. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I think it brings us really nicely full circle in terms of, you know, a lot of what we've spoken about is that taking control, you know, what are my goals? What do I want to do both for myself and also mm -hmm. for maybe my children and how you put those things in place? 
um and and how you frame that how you go about it are you prepared to put the work in are you prepared to get the advice and the support that you need and where do you find that advice and, and support so um so tell people where they can find everything they need to for you so that you can help them in, in the ways that you've described today sure just go to harveywizard.com i've set it up that all of my social media links are there there's a there's a link where you can email me there's a link where you can get a free 15-minute call with me where if you have <clears throat> excuse me a, a, a son or a daughter who's interested in going to college even if it's eighth or ninth grade i can give a a sense of how they might take what what their own passions are, what their own interests are, even if it's Fortnite, I prefer not Fortnite, but, but you know, to, to help them. Um, and again, just by by having a call with me, I will also give away my perfect um, SAT system for free. So Fantastic. you can go to HarveyWizard.com or just Google Harvey Wizard. You should, I think I take up the whole first page of Google with my so <laughs> no problem. Brilliant. Well, Harvey, thank you so much for sharing. Well, one sharing all of that, and, and also, um, yeah, for those those personal touches, which I know uh, people relate to, and, and I think it's incredibly important to to get the the, the story and the understanding of, like, you say, the people behind uh, uh, the survey or the web page or whatever it is. And that's what I love about the podcast so much. Yeah. So, thank you so much indeed. Oh, it's so my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.